It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back. It's great to be with you today. Plenty to talk about. By the way, just just catch up. Check the thing here. You can live stream us. You can live stream us. LarryKudlowShow.com on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com runs all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system, and the Milky Way, wherever the Milky Way happens to be. I still haven't figured that out. During the week, please dial us up. Fox Business Network, FBN. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4 o'clock for some crazy reason, just text message your favorite nine-year-old, and she will teach you how to DVR the show. And you'll never miss a thing, including what may be a banking crisis. Maybe, as everybody probably knows who's listening, one bank in the West Coast got shut down, Silicon Valley Bank. One bank here in the East Coast, Signature Bank, got shut down. Another bank is in trouble, First Republic. And they're in the midst of a uh, private and public bailout. Actually, Signature Valley Bank basically got bailed out by the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, guaranteed all of the uninsured assets above 250000 So that is a bit of a reach. It would be a taxpayer bailout, incidentally, as less and until the bank gets sold. The bank should have been sold last weekend. And for some reason, these left-wing FDIC people, Joe Biden people, they don't like big banks. So they wouldn't let it get sold. They had bidders. They've still got bidders. The minute the bank gets sold, of course, you have... Brand new management, it'll be recapitalized. The FDIC guarantee will be removed and taxpayers will be off the hook. <clears throat> Excuse me. But until that time, taxpayers are on the hook. So the question this weekend, in some senses, is your money safe? All of you listening out there, is your money safe in your bank? And look, the answer right now is yes. Yes, it is safe. But you got some issues here, some very big issues, which we will talk about over the course of the show. Um, is there a real live banking crisis? Is this going to be a repeat of 2008, 2009, when a whole lot of banks and savings banks and money market funds and everybody was in trouble and the market crashed and the economy crashed? I don't think so. I don't think this is 2008, for those of you listening or care about such things. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but, you know, I'd be honest with you having been through all these things. Uh, I mean, I had two television shows during the 08, 09, one at, one at 11 to 12, as I recall. It was on another network. It wasn't on Fox Business. It was on another network, and I had one seven eight. I don't want to go through that again if I can avoid it. It was not a good time. But uh, the banks are in better shape. They're better capitalized than they were uh what is it, 15 years ago? Yeah, it's 15 years ago, 2023, 2008. But it's tricky, okay? I don't want to just kind of run away and say, no, no, no. I mean, bank contagion, you know, people pulling their money out of the banks, 
uh, or the regulators, supervisors coming in. It's it's hard to say. But look, my best hunch, my best guess is this is not going to be 2008. But I got to tell you a couple things here. They're very important in the context of this potential crisis. And probably the single biggest issue is the inflation caused by Joe Biden. The consumer price index is up 14% in the two years plus that he has been president. You know it because of high energy costs, high grocery costs, food costs. You know it because even though you may have a job, the wages you take home are worth less because they're rising less than inflation. In fact, after tax, after inflation, your take-home pay has been falling for about two years. So you understand the inflation problem. And it's the inflation problem that infiltrated these banks, Silicon Valley Bank and uh, First Republic Bank. Why? Because they owned a lot of bonds, okay? They owned government bonds, and they owned mortgage-backed bonds, uh, which have government backing, Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac. But one thing they didn't count on was that the inflation would continue and the Fed would go from a zero interest rate to almost a 5% interest rate, which is where it is today. And so all these interest rates throughout the maturity spectrum, let's take 10-year bonds, which is the bellwether of the entire global economy. That thing basically went from one and a quarter percent yield to as high as four and a half percent yield. Now, it has settled down, particularly all these rates dropped in the past week over concerns about the banking system, but it's three, we'll call it three and a half percent, 3.43 percent. What happens when these bond rates go up? The price of the bond collapses. If you held it to maturity for 10 years, then you'd get back par, 100 cents on the dollar. But if you have to sell it before or mark to market before, then it's worth, you know, substantially less. You're only going to get about 70 cents on the dollar right now. So that cuts into the capital reserves of the bank, okay, if you follow me, and that puts the bank in jeopardy. And a lot of depositors, uh, this started with uh, Silicon Valley Bank in Santa Clara, California, you know, Techland. So they got wind of the fact that the bank lost $15 billion. Virtually its entire capital was lost on a mark-to-market basis. Their whole bond portfolio fell apart. So what you had was an old-fashioned run on the bank. All these depositors started fleeing, especially the depositors who were not insured. Now, as I said before, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, came in and uh, guaranteed they insured the uninsured. That's your at least temporary taxpayer bailout. I don't think they should have done it. The Federal Reserve has a lending window, the discount window, and they did set up a facility, a special credit facility, a backstop, if you will, uh, the Treasury Department and the Fed, to help out these specific banks. At the moment, there's only a handful, okay, You had this bank, Silvergate, out on the West Coast. They're gone. Signature Bank here in New York is gone. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank is gone. It's actually gone into bankruptcy. 
and you're left with First Republic. And um, some of the big banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, some of the others have apparently ponied up $30 billion to stick in the bank and make up for lost deposits or lost reserves. We'll see if that works out. We'll talk about that over the course of the show. But I'm just saying the original sin for this whole story, for those of you who follow it, and I guess everybody does because, you know, it's your money. It's your money in banks. We keep money in banks. Um, was inflation. Inflation goes up, right? Everybody was in denial about it. Joe Biden, Joe Biden to this day is in denial about it. He blames Trump. Ha, ha, ha. Trump left him with 1.4% inflation. Today, the CPI is six on a year-on-year basis. As I said, over the two years, it's gone up 14.5%. It was all Biden's spending. All this... Go back to March of 2021, this big spending bill, COVID emergency relief, he said, even though the economy was recovering and COVID was uh, heading down. Democrat economists said, don't do this. You don't need this money. The economy is growing at 6.5%. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, told us in her hearing in the Senate Finance Committee on Thursday that the economy was calamitous. Joe Biden said it was reeling. we got to spend money, spend money on all the Democratic left-wing interest groups. So they did. And guess what? Inflation popped up. And the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, who was reappointed by Mr. Biden, the Federal Reserve puts them, creates money out of thin air to finance the deficits incurred by Biden's big spending bill. That was the beginning of this. And since then, we've had other spending bills, right? We've had an infrastructure bill. We had a semiconductor bill. Then we had the misnamed inflation reduction bill. Then we had the omnibus bill. You know, we spent five, six trillion dollars in the last two years. Incredible. Five or six trillion dollars federal spending causing inflation to skyrocket which then caused the interest rates to skyrocket, which then sunk the portfolio of government bonds held by these banks. That's what happened. Now, we'll talk about the regulators, the supervisors, and their failure. I mean, a big part of this story, by the way, besides inflation, is this woke business, climate change, equity inclusiveness, diversity, where regulators took their eye off the ball. This Silicon Valley bank was a rogue bank, a rogue bank. The governor of California had money in that bank. His vineyards uh, loans came from that bank. Well-to-do tech entrepreneurs, most of whom are Democrats, The uh, the board of directors of that bank, were all Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama donors. They were part of that operation. The president of the bank was a big left-wing guy. He was a climate change guy. He was a woke guy. So this was a rogue bank. The president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank was supposed to rest supervise it, send examiners in to take a look at the portfolio of stocks, not stocks, but bonds and loans, She's a big, woke climate change person. 
Did she look the other way? A lot of people think she did. So we got ourselves uh, a mini banking crisis. We'll try to walk through some of these specific issues over the course of the show. My basic point is I don't think I'll come back to this. I mean, this is the weekend. So will we get new news, good news, bad news, other banks? I don't know. Last weekend we got bad news. This thing started a week ago Thursday. By the time, actually, at this broadcast, I think I mentioned it, but I didn't know that they were going to close the bank down, Silicon Valley Bank. But they did. Will there be other banks? We'll wait and see. I hope not, but we'll wait and see. What can we learn from this? Well, we'll talk about that over the course of the show. How can we fix this? We're going to talk about that over the course of the show. And we've got plenty else to talk about in the stock market and the world of politics and taxes and Social Security. But it's kind of a tough story, and um, it's a complicated story. And it's also a political story on the left. I'll tell you what, I can't wait. I can't wait for Joe Biden to leave office. And it's going to be a long wait, over a year and a half. But his policies, more spending, more inflation, more taxing, more regulation, the war against fossil fuels, the war against business, the war against small business, He's got a war against banks, too. He's criticizing the banks. I just can't wait what he's done to the economy. And I must say this, this uh, banking, whether it's a collapse, which I don't think it will be, I don't think it's going to be contagious, but it's not going to do the economy any good at all and probably brings us closer to recession at some point in the next year. So let's take a break. I'm Cudlow. We'll talk some more about this. Senator Ron Johnson's coming on at the half hour. He'll talk some more about this and some other things. And um, let's hope for the best. It's the weekend. Let's hope for the best. The Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're talking about this uh, bank story. Uh, Last week, the Federal Reserve loaned out the biggest volume of money since 2008. Now, again, I'm not saying this is 2008, but, 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 but the Fed's discount window for emergencies to shore up banks loaned out $168 billion for the week, $168 billion. That's the most ever for a single week. Their new facility, their new backstop lending facility, which is a good idea, incidentally, that put up another $12 billion. And um, they also loaned the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which guarantees your deposits, and in Silicon Valley guaranteed the uninsured deposits, which is a very controversial thing, putting taxpayers on the hook. Anyway, they loaned the FDIC $148 billion. So $168 billion from the uh, lending window, $12 billion from the new backstop facility and $148 billion to the FDIC. That's over $300 billion. It's a nice piece of change for one week. Over $300 billion. Just saying. Where does it lead? 
I don't know. And then you have this consortium of 10 banks or whatever, the big banks here in New York and North Carolina and so forth. Uh, they're putting $30 billion into First Republic. That's the other bank out there on the West Coast. Uh, that's a drop in the bucket. I mean, I, I don't even I'm not even sure what that's all about or why that's so important, because they're not going to keep doing that. But ultimately, the Federal Reserve's the backstop, the Fed and the Treasury. But anyway, they put in $30 billion. And then you have this very strange story. The woman uh, in charge of the West Coast banks, Mary Daly, she's the president of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. Okay, We have the New York Fed here. I started my career at the New York Fed back in 1973. Anyway, Ms. Mary Daly, whom I've never met, uh, has a very left-wing background, and she's a real climate change person. There's a story in the New York Post. You might want to look at it at home or online by investigative reporter Paul Sperry. I had been talking about Mary. Mary Daly was asleep at the switch. I've been talking about her all week on the Fox Business Show, Cudlow. Her responsibility is not a regulatory matter. Her responsibility was to supervise and examine the banks in her district. And they did a very bad job. They did not supervise or examine Silicon Valley Bank very well. Nor did they supervise and examine First Republic very well. And all this climate money, I mean, the bank, as I say, it was a rogue bank. It was a climate bank. It was a diversity, equity, inclusion bank, really left-wing stuff. Uh, with the board of directors run by a bunch of uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton donors. But uh, Paul Sperry, writing very bluntly, called her a protege of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary now, was the head of the San Francisco Fed years ago. He says Daly had other priorities, including climate change, George Floyd, and Black Lives Matter. By the way, Silicon Valley Bank gave $75 million to Black Lives Matter. $75 million. They did it in 2020 during the height of the race riots and COVID. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist hate America organization. They gave $5 billion to some climate change fund that nobody can really track down. Anyway... Paul Sperry writes, Daly had other priorities, including climate change, George Floyd, and Black Lives Matter, inequities between blacks and whites, LGBTQ plus rights, and a host of other woke social justice issues that had nothing to do with banking and finance. In a recent LinkedIn post, Daly appeared sidetracked by racial justice, writing, what black voices have I lifted up? Equity and inclusion begins with me, George Floyd. She also posted selfies with local Black Lives Matter activists. And she missed all the signs of runaway inflation, which led to the big interest rate hikes that made Silicon Valley Bank's uh, bond portfolios utterly worthless. So here's a case where a left-wing supervisor is very much to blame. And uh, hopefully they'll get some more attention We'll take another quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will have Senator Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin coming on to talk some more about this whole sad, sordid tale. And then we'll um, we'll have a whole bunch of others later in the show. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around, folks. Lots of fun coming up. The Larry Kudlow Show. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We welcome old friend Senator Ron Johnson from the great state of Wisconsin. Senator Johnson, thank you for your time, sir, on a weekend. We really appreciate it very much. Morning, Larry. Uh, happy to be on with you. Thanks for last night on the TV show. I appreciate that, too. You know, I don't know if you saw the journal this morning. It's a very good article. Uh, Mary O'Grady interviewing um, Tom Honig, who used to run the Kansas City Fed and was the vice chair of the um, FDIC for a whole bunch of years. He ran his president of the Kansas City Fed for that. Pretty smart guy, free market guy. You know, he makes a point on the banking thing. Uh, we had all these uh, risk-weighted capital ratios to score the health and solvency of banks. But what they didn't have was what's called duration risk. Now, you know this, um, not all our listeners do, but that just means the length of the bond. A 10-year bond has much greater duration risk than a five-year note or a three-month treasury bill. And that's the stuff that got killed. Their five- to 10-year portfolio, nobody looked at that stuff. All these regulations that came out of different bills, you know, Dodd-Frank and the 2018 bill, duration risk, duration risk because of the inflation and the hiking rates really brought Silicon Valley Bank down and put First Republic and others in a lot of trouble. What do you think about all that? Well, I did read that uh, article, and it was excellent. Yep. Uh, as well as, you know, the Wall Street Journal, Kim Strassel's article was excellent uh, yesterday. They've been running a lot of good articles educating the public in terms of exactly what happened here. I mean, my, my bottom line is this shouldn't have happened. Mm. And I think the main, the main point made this morning's piece is that, you know, where there is no risk, uh, you're going to have more and more problems. I mean, where, where there's no punishment for risk-taking, you're going to have a real problem. Um, and that's what's happening right now when you've got the, the Federal Reserve coming in there, the U.S. Treasury bailing out depositors that didn't do their due diligence, bailing out bank executives, bailing out bank board members, bailing out the examiners, bailing out themselves, uh, people are not going to be perceiving risk and they're going to misallocate capital's result. And that's part of the problem that's been happening with these artificially low interest rates. It's forced people to seek yield, uh, put in, you know, put their money into riskier and riskier assets. And at some point in time, it all collapses. And it's again, this is this never should have happened. That's what's so upsetting about this is this never should have happened except for government intervention. Mm. Um, I mean, when, when the government interve- intervenes in the marketplace, think of those, we do need we need do need some regulation, but we need smart regulation. And unfortunately, that's not what Dodd Frank gave us. That's that's not what has been happening over the years. And these bank examiners, you know, they say, OK, if you've got. If you, you hold U.S. Treasury uh, bonds, you don't have to have any kind of capital backing that up because they're supposedly risk-free. Well, they're not risk-free when Congress spends all this money, creates this inflation, and the Federal Reserve uh, responds by increasing interest rates. Now, all of a sudden, that risk-free asset has a duration risk, as you're talking about. Mm. And, and again, it, it, it doesn't take a rocket science to understand this. And if you had people on the boards of directors that understood banking, understood finance, as opposed to ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion 
ratios, if they actually understood financial ratios, this never would have happened. Hmm. Absolutely right. I want to get to that in a second. Um, the original sin here was inflationary spending, starting back in March of 2021 and on and on since then, five or six trillion dollars. But Senator Johnson and, and and Thomas Honig, who's a smart guy, I've known the guy a long time. I mean, that is the original sin because that's what triggered the inflation and that's what triggered the interest rates uh, while the supervisors and bank examiners were asleep and even the regulatory laws were not sufficient. Uh, I mean, but the original sin was too much spending, right? So the interest rate, I, I'm going to be, uh, you know, ballpark. Basically, the interest rates went from zero to five. And the interest rates on Treasury bonds went from one to five in round numbers, sir. And that's what brought uh, the bank down. They made a lot of other bad decisions. And it's, a you know, kind of a rogue bank, left wing rogue bank. But that's what did it. So what, what do we learn from that, Senator Johnson? Well, what's going to be galling is to listen to my colleagues, these, these uh, members of Congress, House members and senators who have routinely voted for this massive deficit spending, and they're, they're going to be pointing the finger to everybody else. And by the way, like I said, there's plenty of blame. The executives, the board members, the depositors, the, uh, you know, the examiners, there's plenty of blame to go around. But as you said, the original sin was this massive deficit spending that, that sparked inflation that didn't have to occur. Uh, as you're pointing out, after the, the Trump administration, uh, you pretty well left an economy that was roaring mm. with low inflation, 1.4%. Uh, and I was concerned about stagflation when you started hearing about this massive deficit spending proposed by President Biden when we didn't need it. You knew exactly what was going to happen. You were going to spark inflation. That was going to harm the economy, blow it down. You get the supply dislocations caused by the pandemic to begin with. And we were looking back then at the potential for stagflation, which is, I believe, the situation we're in right now. But, again, if you really want to point a finger of blame, blame members of Congress, blame the administration that proposed all this massive deficit spending and voted for it. Yeah, well, that's, you know, this goes, this goes directly, I think. I mean, we've just finished one political cycle. We didn't take the Senate. We should have taken the Senate. You won your seat, which was, you know, a miracle. Very, very important. But we should have picked up a couple others. Um, my, I was here in New York, Senator. We had uh, Senate Republican Campaign Committee with um, John Katsimatidis, who's the owner of this radio station. And we do this every year or twice a year. We have a bunch of senators in, raise some money for them, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I said is that we have to be absolutely clear that the Republican Party is the guardians of prosperity and growth, and that includes the guardians of our budget and our pocketbooks on spending and taxing and, of course, regulating business and regulating fossil fuels. But I think the GOP, it has an opening, Senator Johnson, just like it did last fall, but it's got to take it. It's got to speak to the people. Look them directly in the eye. And we're the party of Ronald Reagan. We're the party of economic growth. We're the party of prosperity. We're the party of limited government. We're the party of small business. You know where I'm going on this, sir, because you are an outstanding example of somebody who has succeeded in these elections with that kind of message. But I think the party's got to wake up, you know. 
You get 20, 25 senators voting for these big spending bills that cause inflation and eventually do lead to bank problems. It undercuts the whole argument. The politics here got to be clarified. They just have to be with some consistency, sir. Now, Larry, the number one component of the solution of all these problems is economic growth. Mm. But you don't grow the economy by snuffing it out with the overregulation. You don't grow the economy by snuffing it out with the inflation caused by this massive deficit spending. You know, Senator Rick Scott in our budget committee hearing uh, earlier in the week made a really smart point. He compared the growth in population to the growth in spending. And he used a figure of, I think, 1.8% since the start of the pandemic. Our population has grown that. I think, it's, you know, if you put it out compared to uh, President Biden's uh, Budget's about 2.5%, but they're going to grow spending by 55%. Mm. So, mm. so our population is growing, you know, somewhere around 2%, let's say, okay? Mm-hmm. But they're growing spending by 55%. You know, prior to, prior to the pandemic, total government spending was about $4.4 trillion. The last couple of years now, it's going to be about 6.2, 6.3. And, of course, President Biden is proposing $6.9 trillion in his budget. This is completely unsustainable. But unfortunately, as you said, we, we've got members of a Republican Party that are routinely voting for this deficit spending as well because spending is popular. You know, bringing, bringing home bacon to, to your state is a popular thing to do. Uh, but we've got to break out of this cycle, and I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I'm supporting the House Freedom Caucus and, mm. and their proposal on the debt ceiling. And listen, the debt ceiling was designed to be used as a discipline. If, you get, if you've got to increase it and take that nasty vote, well, at least attach to it some fiscal controls. And that's what they're trying to do, things like the Prevent Government Shutdown Act or the No Default Act. I mean, there are things you can do that will structurally change the equation, give us a little bit more leverage in, the, in, these, in these spending fights, because right now we have very little leverage in the spending fights because the, the, the press will always blame us if you're threatening any kind of, of a shutdown or default. And by the way, the federal government has more than enough money not to default on our debt. I mean, we, last year, $4.9 trillion in revenue. And by the way, if you would have grown that $4.4 trillion spending from 2019 by just population and inflation, last year we would have spent $5.1 trillion. Think of that. Mm. $5.1 trillion is what the baseline spending should have been, and we raised $4.9 trillion worth of revenue. We, we were within about $200 billion of balancing our budget had we exercised some, some fiscal discipline and returned to a baseline spending but we went on this massive spending spree, which sparked the inflation, which is the proximate cause for now these bank failures. I mean, I think you're going to get I think you need in the debt ceiling battle and you will get a proposal from the House Republicans for new spending callers and a sequestration penalty across the board cut penalty. I think Biden will oppose it with all his might because he'll do anything not to cut one nickel out of the budget. But I think that's where they're going to go, Senator Johnson. New collars and new sequestration. And that's a good beginning. You know, if you want to redirect the uh, budget towards balance in 10, 12 years with a growth budget, that's a good beginning. And, you know, my message to House conservatives, and we're working with them, and to House Republicans is you need to pass an increase in the debt ceiling with those fiscal collars or whatever you want to call them, you know, some kind of fiscal control. You need to pass that with 218 Republican votes to start the process. Mm. If you can't do that, and, and Kevin, Kevin McCarthy has to do a deal with Democrats or Mitch McConnell has to do a deal with Democrats in the Senate, 
we'll get no fiscal controls. We'll just get more runaway deficit spending. So it starts with the House passing uh, increased debt ceiling as quickly as possible with things like the No Default Act, Preventing Government Shutdown Act, you know, certain, you know, returning to a, a more reasonable baseline in terms of spending. Uh, and so we're supportive of the House Freedom Caucus's efforts here. You know, I just loved it when you and I were talking last night about Janet Yellen Thursday before the Senate Finance Committee uh, telling us that the economy they inherited in uh, the first uh, part of 2021 uh, was a calamity. <laughs> that was the word she used. Biden usually uses the word reeling. It was reeling. Actually, Senator Johnson, as you may know, grew by 6.5% in the first quarter. Actually, the, the V-shaped recovery started in the middle of 2020, 2020 during COVID. I mean, we grew by, you know, we lost 35% in the economy, then we gained 35%, and then we gained another 5%. And then coming into 21, it was 6.5% with, uh, as you say, rock bottom 1.4% inflation. And they said they inherited high inflation from Trump and the calamity economy from Trump. And they used that to justify all the spending. I mean, it's just it's just so patently untrue. I mean, just what, what, patently untrue. What they inherited was so much pent-up demand because of the lockdown. I mean, people were just, they couldn't wait to spend money, mm-hmm. you know, bust out of the, the, the shutdowns. Plus, there was trillions of dollars that was spent of COVID relief. And, you know, you know, I, I certainly had a real disagreement with as much as we spent and how we didn't target it as effectively as we should have. But anyway, there was so much money. I mean, in, private savings was way up. So you had all this money sloshing around. You had this, all this pent-up demand. The last thing they should have done was add more fuel to the fire. Mm. So it, it was absurd that Democrats came in power and then spent trillions more of deficit spending. So in the end, they are the ones that sparked this inflation. They're the ones that caused this problem. And they're the ones responsible for, first of all, keeping taking their eye off the ball in terms of uh, what was happening to banks. Uh, but certainly they're the ones that caused the inflation that sparked the, the problem now. Senator, if you got a couple more minutes for us, i got to take a quick break. I want to come back on the other side. The Trump tax cuts are expiring and maybe a word or two about how to fix Social Security. If you could just stay with us. Folks, we're talking to Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who, by the way, did stick to his conservative principles and was rewarded with re-election from the great state of Wisconsin. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm rewarded because I have to work on Saturdays, and I love it anyway, and we'll both be right back here on radio. Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow talking to Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Senator Johnson, um, the Trump tax cuts are expiring. Now, we're getting some of that. Uh, The 100% expensing, as you know, that's down to 80%. The R&D tax credit, full expensing, that ends altogether. Um, we've already had uh, 15% uh, minimum tax on something called book profits. The Bidens want to repeal virtually all of the taxes. But really, in the next couple of years, uh, the corporate tax will remain in place, but everything else goes down by 2025. That's a body blow to the economy because those tax cuts were a major, major stimulant. So is anybody looking at that, talking about that in the conference, Republican conference, and maybe, heaven forbid, even planning for it? 
because um, it's not going to be easy to get him renewed. Well, I am, and that was the main reason I uh, gave up my seniority and membership of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to get on finance so I could have greater impact this time. Oh. The mistake that was made in 2017 is uh, we constrained ourselves to a $1.5 trillion deficit score, and we couldn't do what we need to do in terms of making the tax cuts permanent. And, Larry, you know I'm the one that uh, pointed out the fact that in the initial uh, proposal only cut taxes for about 5% of American businesses, the C-Corps. So I'm the guy that stood up the plate and said, hey, we can't leave 95% of American businesses behind. Mm-hmm. So as, as you're aware, I wasn't, I wasn't the biggest fan of the, exactly how we landed here. And certainly I wasn't a fan of the fact that uh, we weren't able to make all these tax treatments permanent because you, you, cannot, you cannot put small businesses, uh, past your entities, at such a huge competitive uh, disadvantage to the C-Corps. So, no, this is exactly uh, why I joined Senate Finance. I, I, I'm, I'm hiring an a excellent uh, uh, seasoned staffer uh, mm. coming from the IRS uh, mm. through pass-throughs. Uh, you know, I've got my own proposal I call the true Warren Buffett tax. I would, I would personally tax all business income at the ownership level, turn all businesses into pass-through entities. It's mm. entirely possible to do. I actually discussed this with Warren Buffett. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be working on that tax proposal. I'm talking to Democrats. I've talked to Chairman Wyden. Uh, we cannot allow uh, this disparity of, of what will happen to small businesses versus C-Corps uh, if these tax cuts expire in 2026. We can't let that happen. You know, Biden's budget kills small businesses on the tax side. You, I'm sure you know this. Kills it. It, apl- it applies this phony investment tax. It applies higher um, entitlement taxes. It in- implies a higher top personal tax rate. Uh, and actually, the owners of small business wind up paying higher capital gains, both realizing. I mean, he is like the arch enemy of small business. Well, when we're talking about pastures, you're talking about the really small mom and pop shops. And those who were able to give a tax cut didn't even score. The ones I really had to go to fight for the top 20 percent of those pastures entities. Now, some of these can be some pretty large businesses. They're just structured as pastures, by the way. If you don't extend that tax cut, they'll just convert to C-Corps, mm. and then we'll really slash their taxes. So it's, it's mindless. It's just class warfare that's uh, being engaged in right now. And so I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to bring some rational discussion to this thing. And, uh, you know, hope, hopefully we can preserve these tax cuts for every American business because it's those large pass-through entities, entities that are just such an engine of innovation and economic growth and, and job creation in, in our economy. The other one is uh, I noticed, and I've had some private conversations with senators, people with respect to the Social Security stuff. I know it's a third rail of politics, blah, blah. And I know Biden's accusing Republicans of cutting Social Security, Medicare, which is a lot of malarkey. Democrats have been saying that for 100 years. But I noticed there's some uh, renewed interest, Senator Johnson, on um, using a more market-based investment plan for the long term. Um, setting it up as maybe uh, trustees, like the uh, you know savings uh, plan in the federal government, um, maybe letting individuals. But I think you know a market-based plan over long time periods. Whether you're in stocks are the single best investment, but you could uh, you could have a bond fund, you could have a stock fund, you could have an international fund, you can have a mix of all these funds. I was just quite interested and positively surprised that there was so much. Uh, appetite for discussions 
about market-based investment for Social Security retirement? Larry, you know, I'm an accountant, so I've actually done a spreadsheet, a, a what-if. Had we taken the, the Social Security trust fund surpluses every year and invest those in, like, a Dow Jones index fund? I know they didn't exist back then, but, you mm-hmm. know, what if? Mm-hmm. We literally would have something like six, seven, eight trillion dollars right now in hard assets that are assets that have value to the federal government as opposed to the government bonds that have no value to the federal government. It's just an accounting convention. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think people are talking about right now. Unfortunately, they, now they'd have to take you know a big amount of deficit spending and invest that. You know, take about a one point five trillion dollar expenditure and invest that in some kind of a stock fund. The concern nowadays, of course, that all be ESG. You know, it'd be, it'd be dictated by, uh, you know, liberal and woke politics in terms of where that money would be invested. And that's part of the problem that got uh, a Silicon Valley bank in trouble is it's investing in, in, you know, floating loans to all these loser businesses that are all, all based on climate change. They'll never make money. So, I mean, it's a, you got a real problem. Had we done it back then, Social Security would be completely sound. It wouldn't be the, pon- the legal Ponzi scheme that it is, but we didn't do that. Now, now we're going to have to crawl our way out of this. But the sooner we address this, the better. But with President Biden demagoguing the issue, I uh, have a hard time really imagining people are going to address this in a serious fashion. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But it's something worth talking about, I think. Arm's length trustees, things like that. But it's a tough one, I admit. I can't wait for him to be gone, Senator Johnson. That's all I'll say. I can't wait for him to be gone. Senator Johnson, I can't wait for you to stay. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, thanks for helping us very much on a Saturday morning. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Much more on the other side. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And with great pleasure, we bring back an old friend, David McCormick, who's the former CEO of Bridgewater Associates, former Senate candidate in Pennsylvania last year, lost by a cat's whisper, whisker. And he's got a new book out, Superpower in Peril, a battle plan to renew America. David McCormick, welcome back on the show. Hey, Larry. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Anytime, buddy. Give my love to Dina, as always. I haven't read the book because I'm a poor, impoverished broadcaster, and you haven't (laughs) sent it to me yet, so maybe sometime you'll send me one. But I did read, you had a nice long interview in the Wall Street Journal last weekend, and I was quite interested in that, David McCormick and the search for a Republican message. So as I understand it, just for starters here, you we want to sort of have a self-renewable plan for American growth, prosperity, and strength, kind of, you know, mm-hmm. peace through strength, to use my old boss Ronald Reagan's uh, great phrase. Uh, but that yeah, means strengthen the economy, and it also means strengthen our standing in the world. So give us a world for starters. Give me a quick thought for starters. Yeah, well, the uh, you know the book started a couple years ago, long before I decided to run for the Senate, because America's in decline, economically, from a national security perspective, spiritually, and uh, and decline's not inevitable, but neither is renewal, and it really depends on what we do. So this book is meant to be about what we should do, and the cover is very ominous. It's superpower and peril. I think we're at risk of losing uh, the America we love, 
but there's also uh, optimism. And that the, the plan I essentially lay out is to educate our people. I can go into that, that more detail, confront China and secure America. And there's a series of policy initiatives to create that dynamic economy that offers opportunity for all and, and brings back the American dream. So uh, it's an agenda for uh, renewing America. You know, David, I was thinking about it. I mean, I, I read the article uh, very carefully. I've known you many years um, and so forth. And I've always felt, watching particularly the last couple of years here, it's not the American people per se who are in decline. It's this far-left leadership group, the Biden leadership group, uh, in the White House and running all the executive agencies, both economic and uh, international-related. They're the ones in decline, and they're the ones steering us in the wrong direction. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I saw this, you know, on the campaign trail. So if you look at uh, what it feels like to be a Pennsylvanian today with record high inflation, $31 trillion in, uh, in debt, uh, when you see the, a, con- a country likely going into recession, the fentanyl crisis, the crime in the, in the, in the urban areas in Pennsylvania with these uh, radical progressive uh, district attorneys and, and China looming on the horizon, uh, 80% of Americans, uh, Larry, and, and 80% of Pennsylvanians think the country's going in the wrong direction. Mm. And they're, they're, they're being poorly led by a progressive ideology that now, unfortunately, is the majority in the Senate. Uh, two uh, progressive Democratic senators in Pennsylvania, first time in 76 years, and a very progressive left-leaning agenda in the White House. And that uh, is at the core of our problems, and that's the kind of uh, – thing we need to turn around with great conservative leadership in 2024. Yeah, well, this guy Fetterman uh, that finally won uh, beat Memonaz. I mean, he's a far left guy. He's a radical guy. If such a thing is possible, is even worse than Biden, for heaven's sakes. Uh, so you're, you're right on that. But, you know, the other thing is, look, at, at home, I mean, I think the strength has to start at home. So I don't know what's wrong with a traditional agenda, uh, pro-growth agenda, steward of prosperity agenda, of uh, limited spending in government, lower tax rates, lower regulations, reopen the fossil fuel spigots. And, David, the other thing that occurred to me with trade, just reading a little bit about your comments on trade, you know, the thing that Trump – look, Trump rang the bell on China. I mean, that was one of the best things he did. He alerted the country to the to the problem of China – you know, they're, they're not just a friendly competitor. They're an outright adversary. But when we negotiated the phase one trade deal, which was far from perfect, but the idea, and it was true for other trade deals, we had a number of trade deals with South Korea, with Japan, with uh, you, uh, Canada and Mexico. The, the key word, David McCormick, was reciprocity. Reciprocity. And I commend that thought to you because – uh, trade has become right very uneven, very protectionist. I don't like protectionism. I don't think you do either. But you know, if the others won't play, we can't play, and we can't let them I pick t- pick us off. Right? That's your point I, about the I, working I totally, class. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think uh, you and uh, and uh, Bob Lighthizer and President Trump did the country a great service by by bringing back that concept doesn't mean no trade. It means trade that's, that's fair. But, but the thing I do say in there, Larry, which I feel strongly about, is we're losing 
technological leadership to the techno-authoritarian model of China. And uh, there was a, a good Wall Street Journal uh, ar- uh, article a couple weeks ago from an Australian think tank that laid out of the 44 critical technologies, um, satellites, artificial intelligence, and so forth, the Chinese are in the lead in 37. This is not unlike what Bob Lighthizer said in 2017 with that report. He said China was winning in about half of the key technologies. This cannot continue. Uh, these technologies are critical to our economy. They're critical to national security. And so what I lay out in the book is a plan to make sure that we continue to have technological leadership with an increase in basic R&D, but also making sure that we're deregulating and we're also um, creating tax incentives to draw capital to these technological sectors that mean so much to America's future. And, uh, and that's uh, – uh, I'm not sure. maybe controversial in some circles, but I think it's an idea – that deserves real consideration. I think it's a good conservative idea for taking the country forward. And that's um, that's very different than what the Chinese are doing and very different with the industrial policy that President Biden's put in place. Look at the CHIPS Act where all of a sudden there's all these stipulations around child care and you know, climate policy and all, everything else in terms of getting the state money. It's exactly what we have to avoid. We need to make market, market principles to make sure we have uh, techno- technological leadership going forward. Well, hold on to that market principles idea. Those, those, those were the sentences that I got most nervous about reading in this thing. I'll tell you a funny story. We had a bunch of us committee to unleash prosperity. Uh, it's our little think tank in New York of the crazy supply siders like me and Laffer and Forbes and Steve Moore. We had Glenn Youngkin to lunch the other day. He's terrific, Glenn Youngkin, Governor Youngkin of Virginia. But he was bemoaning the fact that um, the so-called CHIPS bill, to almost a $300 billion bill, did stipulate that the key to semiconductor advances is daycare centers and climate right. change. And I said, well, you know, Governor, that's where industrial policy leads. That's what you're going to get. And Republicans are going to, in some cases, as bad as Democrats. So you're better off keeping the regs down and the tax rates down, and let the entrepreneurs lead the way, aren't you? That's definitely at the core of it. But what's happened, I agree with that. So what's happened, however, is there's key areas like semiconductors, as an example, where the subsidies that other countries are giving around the world has essentially created a situation. And Larry, you saw this. Inconceivable to me that 90% of the semiconductors in the world are manufactured 90 miles from mainland China. That can't stand. So we've got to find ways to direct market forces to ensuring that the things that are necessary for America's strength and future aren't manufactured off our shores. And uh, so a big part of bringing manufacturing home is being smart about offsetting those terrible subsidies. Well, make it cheap. Slash regs and tax rates. They'll all come to Texas. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Slash them. Just kill them. I mean, we can even go beyond the Trump tax cut. Now, obviously, this isn't Biden. Because he's for daycare centers and climate change. But that's that's, uh, exactly right. that's what I would suggest. The other thing is, the last one, I don't know whether you get into this or not. You need a sound, strong dollar. Very important. Yeah, I'm sure you noticed the Chinese, Yuan, they're making deals with the Saudis, Rials. They're trying to cut down the dollar. You also need a sound dollar to keep inflation down, David McCormick. A hundred percent. I do talk about that a bit in Superpower and Peril. And you'll attract investment most, with a sound currency. No, no doubt about it. And what's happening at this moment, which I know you've talked about at length, 
with the, you know, the enormous increase in spending, 40% increase in discretionary spending, trillions of dollars over the next 10 years under Joe Biden, is creating uh, a, a real push on inflation, which the Fed's going to have to try to offset. And that is posing real risk uh, to not only our fiscal stability, but the dollar. And the, the best way to have a strong dollar is to have a strong economy. And we're headed in the opposite direction. Well, I will say this, though. You know, I listen, Lighthizer taught me a lot. He's a wonderful guy. And it's funny, he and I started from different places, but we worked together on a lot of things. Um, the importance of technology. Uh, technology is the heart of it. Uh, but I don't think China, I think there's probably too much panic over Chinese technology. That system, which had some market reforms, Xi Jinping is, he's closing it down, David. He's, you know, he's running now much more a real dictatorship in the economy. I mean, I had this with the Huawei phone and 5G. We're basically kicking their butt in that stuff. And, um, a free market's going to beat uh, communism every time. I think a free market is going to beat communism. If, we, if I could take our economy or their economy, I'd take our economy 10 times out of 10. But there's also the reality of the moment where in key areas they are gaining an, an advantage. And so I hear you, ma'am. I, I don't want to have uh, uh, our uh, capitalist system, our free market system be corrupted. I also don't want to let the Chinese – get uh, a lead in some of these key areas that are zero-sum. 5G is a great example where I think the efforts of the Trump administration averted a crisis, mm. but it, real, it took real effort. Yeah. And, uh, and some of these technologies are zero-sum, and because they, the uh, model also creates 100% control of data uh, within China, and you, as you know, data is a real driver of innovation, uh, China poses some unique risks. So my argument in superpower and peril is, listen, we got to stay true to our core principles of markets and capitalism and merit, but we also have to be smart about some of the unique uh, challenges China poses. I think I've got the balance right, but you'll tell me, Larry, once you read the book, and yours is coming, buddy. <laughs> well, well, I hope so. Uh, I hope it's, it's I hope it's not too heavy. I have a lot of arthritis when I hold these books up, but 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 I I will. Well, all right, we'll have to leave it there. We're running out of time. Anyway, David McCormick, uh, the name of the book is Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. You know, I just want to say one. When Glenn Youngkin started, and I love the guy, don't get me wrong, but when he started talking about daycare centers to make semiconductor companies, I said, well, that's what you get in present-day Washington. So keep that in mind. Anyway, I hear you, man. you take care. We'll you. talk soon. Best to Dina. Thanks very much right. for coming on the show. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to talk to uh, distinguished lawyer Andrew Ullman, who was one of my deputies at the White House National Economic Council, about this banking crisis and maybe how we can preserve community banks and regional banks as well as too-big-to-fail central banks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. White House National Economic Council. Thank you, uh, Andrew. Uh, Andrew, did you read the um, really good interview, Mary O'Grady interview of um, of uh, Thomas Honig in the Journal today? Oh. It's a long interview. It's very good. 
I, I haven't seen that piece, but I've seen what he's been saying, Larry. And, and, uh, and first of all, it's, it's great to talk to you again. Well, it's always great to have you. It's always <laughs> great to For folks who don't know, Andrew, Andrew was um, by my side during the Trump years, giving great advice on all manner of domestic and economic policy. Well, so, Andrew, he makes two points, and they're really uh, germane to this business about uh, Silicon Valley and First Republic and, in general, uh, banks and regulations and supervision. But he said, look, the original sin is inflationary policies, which drove up interest rates. But then he goes on to say that the regulations have risk-weighted capital, but they did not have duration risk-weighted capital. So you own these long bonds, right, 10-year bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and, you know, they can't stop out the fluctuations. And I I mean, I think that's a very important part of the story, right? Yeah, well, so the first point, I think, is the one one I'll only start with, which is uh, when the Fed has to raise interest rates at a fast clip, which it's had to do over the last year, it creates a lot of secondary effects and problems for the economy. And one of them is that it can have an adverse impact on the banking system by reducing kind of the value of a lot of their assets. This is the exact same phenomenon we saw during the SNL crisis in the 80s, mm. when, as you remember, Volcker had to raise interest rates substantially. Uh, I think they were over 18 percent on short term rates to combat a really severe inflation problem that put a lot of the SNLs uh, underwater uh, in their solvency. And it caused a decade-long crisis uh, called you know, the SNL crisis that had a really bad impact on the U.S. economy for, for a long time. So this risk has been known. It's a common one out there. Uh, so it's not surprising that it, it, it eventually shows up in the balance sheets of, of, of banks. The thing that more strikes me is this is a classic uh, safety and soundness issue um, that examiners uh, for, for banks uh, have historically been aware of. And uh, it'll be interesting to see as Congress starts to investigate this to learn a little bit more about why this risk wasn't uh, identified. Now, I'd also just note on this point, because I think it's a key one, Larry, is that you know, well, this is why we want to uh, have the Fed committed to price stability. Right. And as you know, we talk about this, is there's been this talk about, you know, maybe inflation, we can tolerate higher levels of inflation, we can experiment around inflation, um, um, and that the Fed doesn't have to be vigilant. Well, this should be a reminder of why price stability is essential, is because by allowing inflation to get out of control, even moderately as we have now, it requires the Fed to raise interest rates much higher than it otherwise would need to to combat that inflation, and it causes uh, a whole secondary effect, including putting a lot of strain on our banking system. Andrew, there's another one too. What? If, how about how about we spend less federally? Yes. How well, about well, how about that one? Right. And so, if you have a uh, a better budget policy, that also puts downward pressure on rates and makes it easier for the Fed to combat inflation as well. So, I, mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's like Joe Biden picked us off. So he comes in, the inflation rate's a little over 1%. It winds up going to 9 plus. It's still around 6. So these interest rates go from 0, I'm going to say 0 to 5. The 10-year note goes from like 1% plus, uh, you know, to almost 5%. Yep. He's like, of course there's going to be a problem. There has well, to be a problem because you, at some point you got to mark to market the assets that even aren't scheduled to be marked to market unless you want to run on the bank. 
Well, and the real irony actually here, Larry, is that the Fed itself is having a problem with this. You know, it used to be able to send a lot of money to the Treasury Department because of the senior edge it creates, but because of its own balance sheet now kind of flipping because of the changes in interest rates, it's not able to do that anymore. So the Fed itself is experiencing the kind of financial stress or financial changes as a result of this sh- uh, sharp increase in, in, uh, in interest rates. Well, by the way, <laughs> on that point, that's a great point. Yeah, right. Because if you mark to market the Fed's portfolio, which is yeah. still around $9 trillion, guess what? They're underwater. They're yeah. underwater. I've seen the work. So I would I wouldn't put my money at the Fed. <laughs> yeah, so they're well aware of this. This is a risk that that's that's pr- pretty out there. And listen, there's there's going to be a lot of uh, discussions about kind of exactly what what happened here. And and in my view, what should happen is that this is where Congress comes in. Uh, Congress can do the examination. It's the responsible for oversight, and have them come in and examine where the breakdown was and. You know, and also we have to remember that banks uh, are always susceptible to runs, mm. and that's just inherent in the bank, uh, the, the the model of banks, and that's why we have the FDIC to come in and resolve banks uh, that get into trouble. That's why we have the Federal Reserve to provide liquidity to solvent banks in times of mar- market stress. That's why we have all three of the banking regulators to make sure that they are, have good uh, prudential regulations to make sure that banks operate within reasonable risk par- risk parameters. You know, I'm as free market as you are, Larry, but we all know when it comes to banks, banks are just different, and they require a, a real well, serious regulatory regime. Um, you don't think this is 2008, do you? No. Neither no, do I. It shouldn't be. It Neither should be. Especially managed, it shouldn't be. Yeah, the Fed lending facility is pretty good. Andrew Ullman, everybody, my old pal from the NEC in the White House, One of the best uh, regulatory people around. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. Thanks, Larry. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, John Carney of Breitbart is going to come in. Is there a bigger recession risk now because of these West Coast banks? This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. A little frog in my throat today. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to talk to John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance co-author of the great Breitbart Business Digest, which, folks, is a must-read. Go and you want to follow the economy, Breitbart Business Digest, and he's got a couple of good ones posted right now. John, welcome back. You know, uh, I was just thinking, always dangerous, but I was just thinking with this bank story, which really doesn't look like 2008, at least, God forbid, not yet. Um, It's pretty limited, but... I guess one question is, uh, how much, if anything, does it raise the risk of a recession? Uh, now, I read your piece, the banks, you know, they put over $300 billion in uh, in different ways, the lending window, the FDIC assistance, the new backstop. Uh, the Atlanta Fed, as you know, John, is 3.2% for the first quarter. That's a big number. And that would be the third straight, you know, pretty good, close to 3% quarter. On the other hand, this week we had a very another bad industrial production manufacturing output number. Manufacturing and production, very important. So what's your take? Does this bank thing have any impact on the recession debate? I think it does. I think that a lot of loan officers at banks right now are basically going to go into liquidity hoarding mode mm-hmm. because they're not sure when they're going to need their, you know, their, their capital and their liquidity. 
they're going to not lend, make a lot of loans. Uh, I, you know, if you were somebody looking to get a small business loan from a bank last week, uh, you, you probably didn't get a lot of people answering your calls. So that has a big contractionary, you know, that's financial tightening, whether or not the Fed actually goes ahead and raises interest rates. Uh, this has very much a similar effect, even more so, I would say. And so I do think that this adds to this probably speeds up the timeline toward a recession. Uh, but I still but I don't think we're going it, that starts tomorrow. You know, I think we're still months away from it. You know, it's interesting. Um, there had already been a tightening of loan standards. I think you've chronicled that or others have. Yes, that's right. And this will undoubtedly add to that. And also, John, you know, I think when you get down, it's not the J.P. Morgans and the B of A's. It's the regionals and the community banks that will probably be even more sensitive to that because they haven't had a run on the bank, but they, you know, expect increased scrutiny for their securities portfolio and their loan portfolio by bank examiners. Not not all bank examiners are as bad as the one in Mary Daly's Saint San Francisco Fed. They were more interested in woke examination. But most bank examiners are interested in loan value examination and bond value examination. And I would think the smaller banks will tighten up a lot. I think that's correct. Um, and not only that, they're seeing what's happening to – in the stock market, you're seeing these regional banks get crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, so, this, so that mean, can both shake your depositors. You know, if you if you see your bank loses 50 percent of its you know, stock, of its market capitalization in a day, you might panic and take your money out. But then the, and the, the banks know this. So I do think that the, we are going and the big banks don't make any small loans at all. So, uh, you know, a vital source of credit to the economy is being uh, squeezed pretty hard right now. So I think that that probably uh, – and, and look, these guys, they they know how these things go. When you rescue – you can step in and rescue the depositor of, of signature, but then everybody says, okay, well, what about First Republic? Mm. And then when, if you do something about First Republic, people very well turn to the next weakest bank. Uh, we saw this back in 2007 and 2008 before, you know, the collapse of Lehman. But these serial collapses of uh, of banks uh, where people wanted to say, you know, OK, you resolved this one. What about this one? Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see more of that in the weeks ahead. You know, the other thing, John, it's thinking about this. Um, I think the Silicon Valley loan portfolio and I, I'm gonna assume First Republic too because what what a, the Silicon Valley loan portfolio had all these ESG techie companies in there that were worthless. They weren't even real companies. I mean this was a rogue bank basically. And um you probably uh read Tim Strassel's article. I talked about it during the week as we covered it on 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 the Fox business show. But the same is true uh First Republic is pretty much the same profile. And the other thing, John Carney, is commercial real estate lending, which apparently was a very big part of First Republic. But the commercial real estate market's been in lousy shape. So people are going to be inspecting the loan uh, valuations, and that will lead to less, not more, loans. 
That's right. And I think there's going, I, and I think those you just mentioned, uh, commercial real estate, that's in a lot of trouble, Larry. Mm -hmm. We have had, um, I mean, there are office buildings that are empty mm -hmm. uh, or half empty. I, you know, I come into, you know, even though New York City, I think, just recently had the highest traffic day in the subway since before the pandemic, I am amazed walking around. You know, when we're doing, when, when I'm on your show on Fox Business, uh, you walk around Midtown, and there's so many fewer people there. Right. Restaurants that used to be crowded have nobody there. Places that, you know, people used to go for drinks after work, there's nobody there. It is uh, – and so this tells you that uh, there's probably a lot of lessors in these buildings that don't want as much space as they originally thought they'd need. That's going to hurt the loans made to build office buildings or to continue to finance them. And so I, I do think there's a lot of a lot more trouble in that area. And, and, and people are going to you know, look at these banks and say, all right, what is your exposure? Where is it? Where are your loans? Which city is it? You know, all of that. Yeah, because, you know, now, so Jay Powell says we're going to have an internal investigation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, you ought to investigate Mary Dale. I mean, she, she's going to have to. She's going to have to really fess up to a lot of this stuff. But the point is, internal investigations are going to put more pressure on bank examiners to be more aggressive, John Carney, as they come into these banks, particularly the smaller banks, including the regional banks, right? You've seen this before. After every credit bust, right, oh, we're, we're never going to let it happen again. So right. examiners are going to stand over everybody's shoulders, and you're not going to get any credit from the banking system. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating uh, for communication purposes, but you understand what I'm saying. And I think that is going to really pinch down the economy. That's just going to be a fact of life in the next 18 months. I think that's right, and that we that both nobody wants to look as foolish as the San Francisco Fed. Right. So the bank examiners are definitely going to step up their game. I think, frankly, that there should be something from Congress to tell bank examiners to knock it off with their ESG nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to just keep a financial system stable, right? That was enough work for bank examiners, telling them to you know worry about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also the environment and climate change. That's that's. We have different agencies for that sort of thing. That shouldn't be the bank examiner's job. Yes, you know, you, you should worry if the bank is lending, you know, on a coastline that may flood. That's not what they were doing here. They were actually pressuring banks to develop strategies to help bring down carbon emissions all mm -hmm. over the world. That's That shouldn't be the banks. It does look like that, that a lot of that sort of thing was going on, at, you know, at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And I just I don't think they failed, you know, because they were interested in ESG. I just think that is something that is too much of a distraction on both the regulatory side and the bank's management side. Well, these ESG DI related company loans, John, they weren't real companies. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, they were on the drawing board or promises, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, I just think it was a rogue bank, but I also think that uh, Mary Daly, San Fran Fed will have to answer. Now, I noticed you had a little bit of optimism in one of your reports about the housing market. Is it housing, John, or is it just apartments that are being built? 
Well, we, we have had a surge, a surge of apartments, but housing actually did, we had growth in single uh, family starts for, I think, for the first time since last summer mm. uh, in February. So that was good news. Um, you look, it, it was one month of pretty good news, meaning, uh, we've, but we have had three months of recovery in, you know, the, the soft data surveys of the National Association of Home Builders. So the home builders are feeling a little better. We're seeing it in the starts. That is a positive development. I think, you know, if the Fed is forced to back off of raising interest rates, that will encourage it even further. Because remember, we were talking about the Fed going to 6% not, not that long ago. It now looks a lot like they, you know, they still are going to go up. Uh, whether they do it at the meeting next week or not might depend on what happens in Switzerland. I mean, they, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces right now. But uh, but I do think the the you know the the idea that the Fed is going to go to seven, you know, a, a really high number uh, is probably off the table as le- at least as long as the financial instability uh, lasts, and that's probably makes uh, mortgages cheaper. Well, the, and so helps housing. The thirty year is still around seven. The thirty year yeah, mortgage slightly rate, slightly below that, slightly below seven, but yeah. that's still a pretty high rate. Yeah, you know, you know what? I think though that over time people get a little bit more adjusted. So when 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 you had you know just a little while ago, right, a, a year and a half ago, you could get a two point seven five percent mortgage, mm. and so people have a little sticker shock when they look at what their monthly payment's going to be on a house with a seven percent mortgage. But I think over time, that 7% actually becomes less restrictive because people's mindsets readjust to the higher uh, mortgage rate. Well, listen, 40 years ago, people were taking out 15% mortgages. Right. But they were cheap, John, because inflation was 20. So even right, right. So if you look at, let's say, 7% 30-year mortgage, the, the inflation rate is 6. I don't know. It's only 1% in real terms. It's not bad. I mean, you know, I feel that way sometimes. So one of the things banks are going to start doing, we're going to start seeing them actually paying more for deposits uh, because this deposit run has happened. Yeah. So if you have a 2.75% mortgage and you can get 5% or 4% from your bank, you're just making free money. That's a very interesting point. <laughs> so last one, John Carney, uh, is the Fed going to um... – Raise their target rate by a quarter on uh, Wednesday or not? I think it all depends on whether or not the uh, Credit Suisse situation is resolved. Uh, I think if they're not able uh, to stabilize Credit Suisse over the weekend, Monday could have a you know, massive financial crash coming out of Europe. Mm. And I think the Fed will – that will be the thing that tips the Fed into saying – because of global financial instability, we're going to put this on hold. If that if if that doesn't happen, if we don't have a Swiss-driven catastrophe on Monday and Tuesday, then I think uh, they they stick with the the idea of raising 25 basis points, but maybe announce a slowdown in qualitative tightening. Mm. I mean, it, it, look, they flooded the market last week with these, you know, the, the new facility, and mm. there's been lots of borrowing at the discount window. Why would you continue shrinking? You know, they're like they're not actually shrinking their balance sheet; they're growing it. So why continue the tightening? Mm. Unless it's kind of on autopilot and too hard to stop. All but right. I think they may announce we're slowing down the tightening, uh, but we're going to keep with. I got to jump. Rate. 
John Carney at Breitbart, thanks very much for the update. Uh, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, a housing expert, Mark Calabria, will come on. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to turn to Mark Calabria, who is back at the Cato Institute as a senior advisor. He's a co-founder of Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And importantly, he was a director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which oversees uh, such uh, undistinguished citizens, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and God knows what else is in there. Anyway, Mark's got a new book out. It's called Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Mark, welcome back. So let me ask you something. Uh, You know, thinking about mortgage meltdowns and so forth, uh, I guess First Republic, Owned a lot of MBS, but I think I think Silicon Valley Bank also owned a lot of MBS. I assume those are Fannies and Freddies. Is that right? Yes, they're predominant. A little bit of Jennies, but predominantly Fannie and Freddies. That Silicon Valley Bank and the Republic, and even Signature had a little bit as well. So, you know, part of the theme of the book is we still have a lot of fragility in our financial or our mortgage finance system coming from Fannie and Freddie. And, and again, part of the story of the book is how we tried to fix Fannie and Freddie uh, and tried to get them in a shape where they wouldn't be a threat to the financial system. Yeah. You know, I think, look, um, obviously I was involved in this uh, with the Mnuchin and you, and actually we had Andrew Ullman on this radio show earlier uh, talking about the, the West coast banks you know, buddy, if you if we hadn't had COVID, I think we would have made a lot more progress on moving Fannie and Freddie toward the private sector, which I know is your goal, was also my goal. But it's it's too bad. But at least you you got them through as their overseer uh, and supervisor. You got them through the pandemic without any crack ups. And, and that's really the point. I mean, you're you're 100 percent right. I mean, obviously, the pandemic threw a lot of things. Uh, sideways and took over the agenda in a lot of ways. And had it not been for the pandemic, I'm, I'm certain that Fannie and Freddie would, would once again be private companies, not under government control and, and not with the government at risk. You know, if we had been able to succeed. Now, the plus is we made we got them through the pandemic and there was a lot of question whether they would survive that. Uh, and I talk about in the book the things we had to do to get them in that condition to try to get them in a position where hopefully and perhaps a future administration will finish uh, what we did, uh, finally fixing them once and for all. You know, but we've laid the groundwork for that. Uh, and it's also important to remember when you, you think about it in, in spring 2020, two mi- uh, 22 million jobs disappeared in, 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 from the lockdowns and from uh, fears of the pandemic in two months and a lot of concern that we would have another housing crisis like we had in 2008. Uh, and I really, you know, I felt so compelled to write the book because working with you, the White House, and of course, Dr. Carson as well, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, we kept the housing market from falling apart. And I felt that that was an important story to tell of why that worked, how we were able to, as, a, as the title of the book says, avert a mortgage meltdown. And what we did to get the financial system in better shape. People forget there was a financial crisis in March 2020. Mm-hmm. And, again, working across the administration, mm-hmm. we stopped that from spiraling out of control. 
And so uh, I'd be the first to say perhaps the book is a little bit of victory blap on our concern, but I think it's a story that needed to be told. Well, uh, and, yeah. I mean, I think you, you go back to that point, and, and it's, I won't say it's easy to forget, but, you know, the economy is in a different place now. But if you shut down the economy as it basically was shut down in the late winter and spring of 2020, then nobody is going to be able to service all these mortgages. I mean, how many of these mortgages are out there? What's the dollar volume in these mortgages? How many yeah, trillions? You're talking a mortgage market close to $7 trillion. Right, right. so that's uh, not small beer. No, not at all. You had one in 10 borrowers take forbearance at some point in mm. 2020. Mm. Uh, and a lot of that was at HUD as well. As I mentioned, you know, Dr. Carson and his team deserve a lot of credit mm-hmm. uh, working across the administration. And that's, that's part of the themes of the book is how we all work together to kind of make sure that this didn't spiral out of control. Uh, unfortunately, most people, you know, by the time I left FHFA, 90 percent of the Danny Freddie borrowers and forbearance had exited forbearance and got back on their feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, that's kind of, and, you know, as importantly, we managed to do this at FHFA without costing any money. We paid for it. You mm. know, and you, you look back at the crisis, the, the Obama programs, we spent $30, $40 billion on mortgage assistance post-2008 as a country. This time around, we managed to do it at a pretty low cost. And, you know, we also did it six times as fast. Mm. It took the Obama administration like three years to get to the point of helping as many people as we helped in two months. So, again, I felt that was a success story that needed to be told, not just for bragging rights, but importantly, to make sure we get it done right next time. Because, you know, there will unfortunately be another recession at some point in the future, and people will have stress in the mortgage market. And I hope they look to this lessons in the book and say, you know, there, there is a right way to do this. You know, and an important message of the book is you don't have to abandon principle. You mm-hmm. and I believe deeply in the importance of free markets and unlimited government. And, you know, sometimes people knock that as, well, how do we think these guys are going to govern? And this book is an example of here's how you can govern successfully mm. with results as a small government conservative. And you can show that there's a way to do it and be compassionate and help people and actually get real results. Well, one of these days, we're going to get another free market group running the white building. Ah, Your ears to go. <laughs> and that group or, is going to recharter Fannie and Freddie, make them out to be some kind of commercial bank or some something like that, and we'll finally move them off the federal balance sheet. One of these days. I don't know when. We We got close. Well, you know, we got close enough to actually talk about it in meetings. So that's pretty good. (laughs) That's got to be some progress. Anyway, I'm out of time. Mark Calabria from the Cato Institute. The name of the book is Shelter from the Storm. How a COVID so mortgage much, meltdown was averted. Thank you, Mark. We'll talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a break. The other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work and other things with Kevin O'Leary, Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful. I'm Kudlow. Hang around. we got much more to do. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us, by the way, on the Internet here. 
LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system, and the Milky Way. Please join us during the week on Fox Business Network, FBN, named the show's Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't join us at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. I want to make a comment or two. Uh, it's been going on uh, all morning. The um, rumors, apparently, that um, this left-wing district attorney, Alvin Bragg in New York, George Soros district attorney, this is the guy, no bail, no jail. But he's going after one person, former President Donald Trump, about um, uh, allegations regarding a woman named Stormy Daniels. I'm sure you all know about it. Uh, the left-wing cable networks I see are running it uh, all morning long. Um, some coverage on Fox less than what the cable. Cables are going crazy about this. Look, I'm just going to make a couple of comments. We'll talk about it more with Steve Moore and Liz Peek in our Money in Politics segment. And uh, we're holding uh, on. Kevin O'Leary is going to talk to us about banks and stocks in a minute, but I didn't want to stick this on Kevin. Look, uh I am a former Trump alumnus. There's no doubt about that. Uh, personally, I happen to love the guy. I've, I haven't stated my views about this particular election, um, but I value my service to him enormously, and I think he did enormous good for this country. You know, this Stormy Daniels stuff surfaced in 2016, and it was a big nothing burger. Nobody cared. Had no, it had no impact on the outcome of that election. None whatsoever. And I think that to some extent, this is just a clown show by a left-wing prosecutor backed by left-wing people who are going to do everything they can to embarrass Mr. Trump in his presidential run in this 2024 cycle. All right, that is my view. Uh, I am in possession of no evidence. I've not followed this. I'm not a lawyer. He's running for president, not sainthood. That was the basic view back in 2016. The issues that face us are the economy, inflation, uh, banking problems, uh, America's decline around the world with respect to Afghanistan and Russia and China and things of that sort, uh, why it is we're spending so much money uh, in Washington, which has caused the inflation and the interest rate problem, which has damaged the middle class, working folks, blue-collar folks, and is now affecting our banks. Those are the issues, to name a few. The high price of energy, the high price of food and groceries. Those are the issues, to name a few. Not some episode that happened years ago that was never proven, and all they're going to try to do is make him look as bad as he can be made to look, and I think that's an issue, all right? I think it's a clown show. I don't think it's going to have any impact. That is my personal view and like a lot of personal views, you know, those people who are hearing this, you will agree with me or you'll disagree with me. And I will respect a disagreement if you think I'm wrong. But I think this is an absolute setup. I don't think there's any basis for it. And I don't honestly think Americans care, okay? For a day or two, you may get a story here. They're going to try to put handcuffs on them or Lord knows what they're going to try to do. It's like when they invaded Mar-a-Lago over the documents and made a big deal about that, invading his home. 
Nobody invaded uh, Joe Biden's homes when they found classified documents or, for that matter, Mike Pence. And, of course, with Trump, they let out everything they could let out to make him look as bad as they could bad. It's just like the January 6th committee. So I just want to say that I've held my tongue for two hours and I just want to put that into play. And again, folks, you can agree with me or disagree with me. You know, that's my view. I'm an opinion guy and we'll see how this thing plays out. We'll talk a little bit more with it uh, when we get Liz Peek uh, and Steve Moore uh, on money politics in the last half hour. Okay, I um, thank you for listening to that much now. I want to bring in my pal, Kevin O'Leary, chairman of O'Leary Ventures, uh, famed Shark Tank participant. He's called Mr. Wonderful. He's an old friend of mine. He's been on this show many times in the past, and we welcomed him back to the new TV show last week. By the way, Kevin O'Leary, the ratings that you and I had when I tried to talk you into buying uh, Silicon Valley Bank. The ratings for that segment were fabulous. <laughs> Absolutely. Larry, I, I got so many calls from people <laughs> saying, hey, listen, really putting a syndicate together? I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> Pro- probably 15 calls. My guys are just swarmed. I, my own guys call me and say, what the stuff you're doing with Larry? What is this? <laughs> we don't know about it. What's very up? interesting, Larry. What, if anything, have you learned, or what, if anything, how, if anything, your thoughts advanced or progressed about this uh, so-called banking crisis with this Silicon Valley Bank and now the First Republic Bank. Give us your thinking, state of play. Since we last talked, the narrative shifted quite a bit. Um, What people are beginning to realize about, uh, let's just take Silicon Valley Bank first, Uh, very, very um, regional in the sense it was started to service that economy 40 years ago. And, you know, its own policy and how management ran the bank are under scrutiny now for obvious reasons. But if you're sitting in Texas or if you're sitting in Florida where I am, um, at the beginning this narrative was you've got to save this bank because it's going to take down the whole banking system. Well, people don't feel that way this Saturday morning anymore, Larry. Mm-hmm. They feel that this was a bank run by idiots and should be dead. Mm-hmm. And there's a process in place to liquefy any assets. If the brand has any value, I personally think it doesn't, it will be acquired. But the brands now of things like Signature Bank and First uh, Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, they are now associated with um, incompetent management. And so let's take this case where we've put in billions of dollars from money center banks to prop up federal um, – sorry, First Republic. Now, do you, do you think ever again that a CFO in a corporation to tell his board, I'm going to put our assets into First Republic – it's, it's it's a zombie bank, and we have evidence of this, and I know you know this. Credit Suisse has been a zombie bank for 19 years mm-hmm. because nobody will put the majority of their net worth in there because it's been tainted. The brand is broken. The same thing happens as soon as you lose confidence in a brand. It's over in banking. It's all based on trust. Now, is it because of idiot management and competency? It has to be because the reason these banks get in trouble is the people that make daily decisions on what to do with the assets and the deposits made the wrong decisions. They're mm. not good bankers. Mm. And, you know, that's so, – so for me, people tell me, well, don't you think we should save First Republic? No. 
Mm. I don't think we should. I think it should go down. You know, it's like someone resting on their deathbed. It doesn't matter how much you care and love them. It's over. There comes a time, and this brand is now tainted forever. And it will, if it doesn't go down this next week or the week after, you can pump another $30 billion into it. It is going to zero, Larry. It will eventually go to zero. You know, on that point, well, two things. Number one, as you know, the holding company declared bankruptcy, so that's one thing. But also, Kevin O'Leary, um, there's been a lot of criticism uh, directed at the bond portfolio, which was the proximate cause of the problem of owning long-duration bonds without knowing how to manage long-duration risk. But what about the loan portfolio? There's been a lot of criticism uh, that this was kind of a rogue bank. It had a lot of ESG loans. It had a lot of climate loans. It had a lot of, you know, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion loans by companies that weren't really companies and didn't have any cash flow. I mean, the loan value assets uh, haven't really received much attention, but that could be a big problem. It's coming up. That the scrutiny on the actual portfolio, up to 9% of the loans had no way of paying back the principal, the principal unless they were refinanced outside of that bank. Mm. And so that's a very scary portion of the book. But this really speaks to the point of incompetent management. There's no question about that. Your whole job is to mark to market your book every 48 hours. 24 hours in a bank to see where any breakage or slippage is occurring and adjust accordingly. That is your role as the CEO, as the management, as the CFO. All of the officers in that bank were really bad. And this is it's so harsh to say this, but I've been saying all week, idiot managers. And the, the system, our system that has worked so well and built this economy up so well over 100 based on culling out the idiots, you have to let them go to, and, and you have to get rid of them. Mm. And the system does it. They go bankrupt. But in this really perverse situation, we're flying in money from good managers to give more money to bad managers. Mm. Why are we doing that? And then there's the whole question about whether we need these regional banks in the first place. You and I touched on that this week on television. Mm. And I think that's somewhere we can talk about because there is a shining example of success on regional banking. It's in a state that no one ever looks at. It's called North Dakota, the only state in the union with its own sovereign bank. It manages its own risk mm. for 100 years, more than 100 years. 20, in 1919, this bank was put together, mm. and it manages the local branches of other banks in the state of North Dakota. Wow. That's how you do it, right. because they're responsible for themselves. Kevin, let me take a quick break. We're going to try to clear up the connection with the phone call. We'll continue this and maybe get a few pearls of wisdom on the stock market. Folks, Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Um, Kevin, what's this impact going to be, the bank impact on the stock market, on the economy, on the Federal Reserve? What kind of stuff are you thinking about? Well, let's talk about equity values of banks now, whether it be the regionals or the money centers. Um we're going to have tremendous pressure on stock prices. There's been a lot of optimism. You could buy J.P. Morgan and get a deal, and you've done nothing except lose money trying that. It's like picking up a falling knife, and here's why. You don't know how deep the new regulatory environment is going to be, the tonality of that regulation. And the first place to look at the regional level, let's start there, where those stocks have been crushed, is that most people anticipate the regulators – requiring more liquidity, in other words, more cash on hand. Now, when you have to keep cash on hand in a regional bank, you're not loaning it out, you're not making any money. 
So there's going to be tremendous pressure on profits there. Mm. And so if you think about how regional bank management gets compensated, it's stock options primarily. You come into the banking system, and there's good managers there. They're not all idiots, but they're basically compensated long-term on the stock price. And every once in a while, and certainly this has been the case, you know, in, in Silicon Valley Bank is the shining example of this. You really start swinging for the fences with really stupid strategies to do anything in your power to push the stock prices up. And as a result, you blow the bank up. And this is going to keep happening to some percentage of the regionals. And so this punitive regulatory environment that will be coming shortly will put pressure on the PEs or the, you know, the ratios at which they trade against the index a lot. I believe banking will trail the index now for the next decade. Mm-hmm. So you can allocate. But if you under-allocate to banks, you're probably going to outperform. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you were saying, you hinted at this on the TV show. You mentioned it a moment ago in the first segment. You don't think the regionals are necessary. Well, here's why I say that. If you look at these franchises, most of them were founded, and this is again the case for Silicon Valley Bank, 40 years ago, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And at that time, it made total sense to have regional banks because the economies were different in different geographies in the country. Agro, ag might have been something important in, in the you know, mid-states like North Dakota, South Dakota, technology in California and Massachusetts. And so the bankers there had to kind of fit the tonality of the economy. And that made sense. Today, that is completely not the case because all banking now, whether it be corporate or personal, 99% of the transactions are done online. Mm. You're agnostic to where the bank is. And so is there a reason for a regional bank? The only one you can claim makes sense is to show that 40% of commercial real estate is held by regional banks, some regions up to 60%. But that makes no sense now because you can also finance the value of real estate from an open, wide online market, including commercial and residential. Rocket Mortgage is an example. You don't even know where they're headquartered. Many people get their mortgages <laughs> online with something like that, a service like that. I have no really? idea. I have no idea where they're from, actually. No, it's like right. these car companies online. I have no idea where they're from. So, Larry, then I ask you this question. And this, I was downstairs at my local bodega, you know, I support here in, in Miami Beach. And the guy I know very well that owns it says to me, let me get this right, Kevin. You're telling me that my money, my personal net worth, because I am a taxpayer, and one way or another, I'll be paying to bail these banks out in California. Oh, yeah. Why does an idiot manager in California take my money when I'm working hard to keep my family afloat here in Florida? Mm. I didn't have an answer for him, Larry. Yep. That's a hell of a good question. Yep. He's right. Yep. He's absolutely right. Well, I think they made a big mistake uh, expanding that um, deposit insurance. And I think that it was a bigger mistake for uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen or Biden or anybody to say the taxpayers aren't going to pay for it because taxpayers are not as stupid as some political people think they are. So they saw right through that. But what about the Kevin, go down another notch. Does it matter to have these uh, smaller, smaller community banks, you know, where the argument has always been, they know the local small businesses better. They know the local farm businesses better. They know the local people better. Do we need community banks? 50% of those local businesses in some states even more are using online factoring for their receivables. Mm-hmm. They're going into the open online market to finance receivables. Even dentists do that. Even dry cleaners do that. So that's a fallacy as well. Look, I don't have a problem if a state 
wants to support local regional banks. Hmm. They've got to move to the North Dakota model. North Dakota says, look, we'll put the faith of, the, of our state and all its assets, were, which are very considerable, into a sovereign bank. Hmm. It's our bank. We don't need the feds telling us what to do because we're going to take care of our own people in our own state. And we will support regional banks in Bismarck or Fargo because we want them there for whatever reason. But it's our money in our state for our taxpayers. Hmm. That way, the guy downstairs here in Miami Beach doesn't have to sweat bullets for a regional bank in Fargo because that system works. Hmm. It's extremely well managed. The sovereign bank has been successful since 1919. Hmm. No idiot managers there. So why don't we look at that model, go talk to Governor Burgum or either the senators. Those hmm. guys have it right. Hmm. They control their own destiny, and they're very, very independent that way. That's and fascinating. We need, to, we need to move to a state. That if, if, you, if you're a politician in any state and you want to have regional banks, you eat them. Hmm. They're yours. I got to ask Ke- really think- Kevin Kramer, one of the senators, a very dear friend of mine. Actually, they're both friends, John Hoven, too. That's fascinating. I didn't know that, to be honest with you. So that's Nobody a, knows really, that's North really Dakota has the fourth fastest GDP per capita growth in the country. Well, and I knew I that. I, I know how hot the state is, uh, a lot of it because of the fracking and the oil and gas. I didn't know about the banking, Kevin O'Leary. That's fascinating. Yeah, I know that. Listen, I went to visit those guys, and I was blown away. And I, and I did this when I started to see the wonky policy in New York and Massachusetts and, you know, California, where I'm pulling all my companies out of there because I can't do business because of the regulatory environment and the high taxes. Right. And it was, a, it was a call from Governor Burgum said, why don't you set up here in Fargo? We have the second largest Microsoft campus. Who huh. knew? We're the, we're the largest manufacturers of vaccines in the country. Who knew? We yeah. have our own state sovereign bank. Who knew? I went there and said, okay. <laughs> these guys are open. These guys are open for business. We're organizing a trip out there. Senator Kramer's organizing a trip. I'm going to go out there, so we're going to get a private plane. Maybe we'll get you to come out there with us. That's terrific. You can kick the tires, Kevin. I got thirty, forty seconds quickly on the stock market in general. What are you thinking? Uh, we're locked. We're in a range. I think the uh, you know the volatility around rates. I think the Fed will go 25 basis points. Everybody thinks they're going to pause. I don't think so. Mm. The banking crisis is not the crisis people think it is, but we do have core inflation 6%. I see 25 bips. I think that's going to keep us locked in a range. You know, we'll trade up and down 10, 15%. The best performing asset, ironically, this year has been crypto. I mean, (laughs) you you got got to laugh at that, right? I mean, it's just, it's for all the things that people have said about it. You wish you owned more Bitcoin right now. You know, I'm I'm looking at my sheets. You are exactly right. 26,819 year to date. Bitcoin is up 62.2%. That's fantastic. You are the best of the best. Kevin O'Leary, folks, there is nobody better than Kevin O'Leary. Thank you ever so much. I'm Larry Kudlow. Take a quick break. On the other side, Money and Politics with Steve Moore and Liz Peek. Stick around, folks. Bitcoin. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics. I guess we're going to have to do some politics first. But we're here with the great Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. 
defending Wellesley. I guess you were defending Wellesley College. Were you defending Wellesley College? I was. I was celebrating Wellesley yes. College yes. and its president Paula Johnson for deciding that students don't always have uh, know what's best, and deciding that the school should not admit trans men. Ah. Uh, you know, one of the few colleges that has actually pushed back against an agenda that I think a lot of Americans really oppose, but that the backers of an all-women's college should definitely oppose. All right. Well, I will say this. Uh, Liz Peake, whom I love dearly, is perhaps the only free market conservative ever to come out of Wellesley College. <laughs> <laughs> that may or may. Actually, I used to say that about Michelle Caruso Cabrera, too, who's another wonderful yeah, lady. there you go. Uh, and is a, a graduate of Wellesley College. And we don't want to forget my brother, Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, uh, author of the book, Godzilla, and his uh, great radio show called More Money is going to play on many of these same stations uh, right after this show is uh, complete. I-, I don't even want to do it to you, but I have to because everyone's talking about it this morning and all the cable stations. Uh, there's a lot of issues out there in America today, inflation and interest rates and bank meltdowns and China and Afghanistan and Ukraine and um, and uh, fracking or no fracking and fossil fuels. So, of course, all the cable shows are talking about New York left-wing New York prosecutor Alvin Bragg, who is apparently allegedly going to arrest Donald Trump on Tuesday. I don't know if any of this is true. That's what they're alleging. This issue came up in 2016. Nobody in the country cared about it. It had nothing to do with the presidential race. And now Alvin Bragg will be the uh, – Tony Dolan, a speak, great speechwriter, wrote me, uh, emailed me how Alvin Bragg, this left-wing, soft-on-crime, George Soros-backed district attorney who is no bail, no jail, he's going to be the new poster boy of the Democratic Party. All right, kids, we have to cover this uh, because we are live news Steve, since I hit Liz for Wellesley, Steve Moore, I'll go to you, uh, whatever you are, University of Illinois. What do you think of this? Alvin Bragg, the Democratic poster boy, is this really going to be an issue in this presidential election? Well, first of all, Larry, this is so disgusting and outrageous. I mean, I, really, when I read about that this morning, I, I, I'm just fuming. Mm. And it, it's Good. because, um, look, this is the guy, and whether you like Donald Trump or not, he has been so abused. Uh, over the last five years. I mean, no politician in American history has gone through what he has gone through. And let us not forget, these same people who want to indict Donald Trump are the very same people, Larry, who invented and conspired the Russia collusion right. hoax right. for two years. Good and the, point. By the way, shame on Congress. Good these point. These are the people who tried to impeach him twice. Twice They, tried they to did impeach Donald him Trump. twice. They did well, impeach well, him. Yes, they couldn't get him out of office. You're right, Liz. And so... You know what they should do instead of indicting Donald Trump? They should say, you know what? We're sorry for the abusive <laughs> treatment of a, of a um, rightly elected president of the United States. And I'm going to say one other thing, Larry. You can tell I'm angry about this. Yes. This only plays into Donald Trump's hand. This only makes people more supportive of Trump because they see the sinister forces that he is up against. Uh, I want to say um, one of the headlines coming out, I uh, got this from the boss, John Katsimatidis. Uh Breaking news, U.S. House panels to probe politically motivated prosecution of Trump. You know, um, Liz, uh, I uh, I happen to agree with Steve Moore. Whoever you're for in this presidential election, uh, this is just uh, the usual uh, Trump uh, zealotry. 
Uh, they're going to try to, I guess, embarrass him, do anything they can to stop him, put handcuffs on him. I don't know. I hope the Secret Service yeah. steps in the way because it really it, – what it does is it demeans the whole country when you see this kind of nonsense. But you go ahead, Liz. It's up to no, you. No, I, I, I totally 100 percent agree. Mm. Uh, Trump has been beaten up since the day he came down that escalator unfairly uh, and really just horrifying – to see two systems of justice. And, of course, the hypocrisy here is pretty astounding. People can push someone in front of a train on a subway track, and Alvin Bragg won't prosecute. But this right. this is a charge, by the way, that even the New York Times has called a quirky, or forget the description they mm-hmm. used, but a, an unproven right. sort of theoretical charge that they're bringing uh, for a misdemeanor, I, I think, right? It's a misdemeanor. I mean, it's the craziest darn thing that they're going to actually arrest this man when no one else is in New York is getting arrested, basically even for assaulting people with a deadly weapon. I mean, that's literally a fact. So, I, you know, uh, I can't really understand it, except I, I really kind of wonder if they know, if the left knows that the thing that will really get uh, Trump supporters riled up right. and right. eager to uh, get him to be the uh, candidate is just this kind of thing, piling on yet again – uh, it never works because Trump always ends up uh, raising right. tons of money on it, et cetera. Mm. But I almost think they want him to be candidate. They want him right. to have people streaming into the – they're also hoping – I literally think they're hoping for an outbreak of violence over this. And you could have that because there are people on Twitter and stuff right now saying we need to take this into our own hands. We can't wait for law enforcement or Congress. You know, it's it worries me. I mean, it really worries me that we could have a violent response to this. On the right, you've had almost no violence except for January 6th. And look how well Democrats think that turned out for them. But look at this guy, Steve Alvin Bragg, who was a oh, joke, an absolute joke yep. in crime circles. He's a joke in New York, for heaven's sakes. Even the lefties are basically disowning him. And so he's going to be the poster boy. So what? Alvin Bragg is going to run against Donald Trump for president. Right, I'm taking on Trump. I'm taking the over on that one. I mean, honest to goodness. It's just I mean, yeah. this is just one of these crazy things. I don't know who dreams this crap up. But I mean, I'm watching all morning. I didn't say a word about it. This is by and large is an economic and financial show with a little bit of money politics thrown in with you two. <laughs> Uh, two stars. But I'm watching. Uh, I got, you know, MSNBC and CNN and Fox and I'm watching MSNBC in particular. I mean, I, I, they're dancing. They're dancing yeah. on MSNBC. I got to just yeah. say that. So go ahead, Steve. We'll, we'll move. We'll say it. We'll take a break and then come back with something serious. But take another whack at it. Well, these are the same people who were involved in the outrageous raid on his home at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, I mean, right. to do this to an ex-president is just, I mean, Liz, you put it so well. This is so anti-American. And in this this is just anti-Trump derangement syndrome. They can't get over him. And you know, that they, yeah. He hasn't been president for three years. They can't get over him. I do think this will unite uh, the Trump uh, voters against him. And even just fair-minded Republicans will yeah. view this as an outrageous uh, uh, um, abuse of power. And finally, you know, if, if Joe Biden had one ounce of 
of class, which he doesn't, unfortunately. No, no. He would just give a blanket. Um, I agree. Trump. I agree. He he ran as a as a candidate that was supposed to bring the country together. Steve, yep. remember that. Yep. And nothing he has done in office is had could be more divisive, in, including the ongoing narrative about MAGA extreme Republicans and the threat they are to our country, which offends about half the country. But I agree. Yep. Number one, he should have undertaken when he came into office a fair look at all the complaints about the election, because if he actually won by however many votes they claim they won by, why not, you know, expose all those claims early on, get it out of the way, tamp that Mm -hmm. down. And now I totally agree. Pardon Trump. And my guess is he goes away because that's the end of all this. But Democrats don't want it to end. They have raised more money, gotten more people out to vote by hating Donald Trump than anything they do. That is the only success they've had. It is tragic. By the way, someone's going to ask Biden if he was behind it. And then they're going to say, did you know about it? And he's going to answer what he always says. No, I didn't know anything about it. Well, I believe that because he, I don't think he's in the swim of 90 percent of what's going on. <laughs> the trouble is, yeah. Liz, he, he may be in the swim. He just can't keep his head above water. That's the problem. I <laughs> he's think. drowning in the he's swim. He's drowning in the swim. All right. OK, uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back and maybe talk about whether there's a banking issue and if that affects politics. We are talking to Liz Peake. Uh, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist Steve Moore, who actually his fine radio show, More Money, is coming on right after this one. I'm still Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, hotline and his uh, great show, More Money, is on uh, the radio right after this show. Kids, let's uh, in the remaining time. Uh, look, the proximate cause of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the damage done to Signature and Republic uh, National Bank, which is still alive, uh, the collapse of the bond portfolio, duration risk was done very badly. Right. But right. what I want to talk about was. There's a lot of talk. I mean, I've mentioned it. Uh, Kim Strassel written about it. All the ESG, woke, climate change, DEI stuff that was in the Silicon Valley portfolio. You have this uh, Mary Daly, uh, the president of the San Francisco Fed, uh, who's a very woke uh, regulator. Um, how much of that is part of this banking story, Steve Moore? How much of that is going to um, you know, filter out? to the public that maybe we should think about having sound banks and not all this social policy when it comes to banking and preserving our deposits. Well, I agree entirely with what you said about, you know, the arbitrage, uh, you know, play on the uh, bonds, which hasn't played out well at all for the banks. And so that, that was, you're right. That was the proximate cause of this crisis, but, uh, and, and I'm not going to blame this crisis on the SG but I, but I do think there's something big going on here, which is that too many companies have taken their eye off the ball. <laughs> they are in business to not make social statements, uh, not to fight right, racial injustice or you know fight climate change, but to you know create jobs and make money for their investors. And they've taken their eye off the ball. And anybody who has not seen that completely comical uh, three million dollar video that the uh, 
that the managers at, at Signature made. It looks like mm. a scene. When I saw it, I thought it was a I thought it was a scene from the old TV show The Office, mm. running around, dancing around, saying how much they care about you know minorities and, and this and that. And I, this this is a problem I think writ large in corporate America today, Larry. That they these companies need to be focused, laser focused on their mission and their uh you know what they do and how they make profits not on saving the planet from climate change well and the other of course that whole skit was something out of the babylon b i mean it was very hard to believe but liz um do you think that the regulators this particular group of regulators whether it's the fed the fdic the controller white house national economic council such are they pushing the banking system toward uh, all these social policies, ESG policies, climate change policies, and now reaping the whirlwind. Yeah. Well, they'd like to. I mean, the more uh, that they, the Gary Cohns and, and various people who are in charge of making policy for banks and how banks assess their assets and stuff, they want very much to be uh, making climate change part of that. In other words, if you have an asset on your – if you're making a loan to a company, if that company – uh, is an oil company or a coal company, and it's not, uh, you know, tethered to the climate cause, that asset eventually they want to have valued less on your balance sheet than one that's going to something that they favor. So, yes, they want that to be a big issue. But I want to go back to what Steve said, because, I, I, in fact, I just wrote something about this for The Hill. It, this uh, idea that companies have a broader responsibility to their communities, to their stakeholders, and, and so forth, than just making profits goes back to the Business Roundtable in 2019, who re- right. redefined mm. corporate right. the corporate mission. Mm. And this is not this is not insignificant. You have most companies in America now, most CEOs, parroting that change in mission. They don't any longer believe that creating jobs, creating profits, investing investing in the future of our country is sufficient. Now they have to earn all kinds of woke credentials. I didn't, to my credit, I didn't use that word woke once because I'm so tired of it. Uh-huh. But it is an agenda. And and you know i've i know people in this world if you spend a third of your time scurrying around trying to make sure that all your dei initiatives are working your climate change loans are appropriate etc you're not focused on whether yeah. your bond values are sinking like a stone i mean it's just human nature so i think it's a real problem i think steve said it exactly right companies have taken their eye off the ball in this case and the case of some of these other banks it's almost unimaginable that this happened. I mean, that's how egregious the errors were. But let me just add something to that that's really important, and it's a, a matter of um, some urgency. Right now, Larry, as we are speaking, there is a bill on Joe Biden's desk. I don't think he's I don't think he signed it or vetoed it yet. And that bill would basically instruct the pension managers mm-hmm. through you know yeah. the ERISA law not to take into account you know this. <laughs> Uh, you know, ESG stuff that that they should not be putting politics over the uh, profits of, of people's lifetime savings and that they have a fiduciary duty to uh, to make sure that, they, that they're getting the best return. Now, if Biden vetoes that bill and I, I all the signs are that he will, Larry, I think it's going to be a bad look for the Democrats. I think you're going to have millions of millions of retirees saying stop 
playing politics with my lifetime savings and my pension money. I want to move to Florida when I retire, and I'm not going to have the money to do it. Well, and particularly in the wake of a, a year in which stocks were down 20 percent exactly. and energy stocks were up 61 <laughs> percent. Exactly. That was that was an oops. <laughs> by, the, by the way, uh, I believe over 50 Democrats in the House supported that bill. Yeah. With the Republican. With, it was a oh, Republican yeah. bill, but I think yeah. over 50 Democrats joined the Republicans in that bill. Yeah, so but that, Larry, that still, that still means over 100 Democrats voted to, to basically put people's pensions at risk. I think this is a li- live wire political issue because they're going to have to explain why people's 401k plans and their pension plans aren't getting the return that they deserve. Yeah. And this is so right. I mean, the top performing stocks last year were Conoco, Phillips, Exxon, and Chevron. And guess yeah. what? These woke people, they divested in all those stocks. By the way, Kevin O'Leary was just on. Uh, you know what the best performing asset has been so far this year? You're going to love this. Um, no, probably, I, I, I want to say oil, but it's probably not oil. No. Bit, Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin I know, is up 62.2%, yeah. and it closed on oh. Friday. It closed on Friday at 26,819. <laughs> I yeah. just love that. Only Kevin O'Leary knew that. I mean, that's just absolutely fantastic. Oh, absolutely by the way, fantastic. watching it, and I frankly... I don't even understand it, honestly, because, <laughs> I mean, up until very recently, it was sort of a it was it was trading with the herd. If you had a decline in risk assets, yeah. Bitcoin went down, too. And suddenly that has changed. And I'm not quite sure why it's trading with gold and silver. Steve, what were you going to say? Yeah. But speaking of Kevin O'Leary, have you seen a CNN interview? Uh, not, not, not it, it will be in the hotline. You will get it uh, tomorrow morning. Yeah. He was on CNN yesterday morning. I think it was yesterday morning. And he was being interviewed by Don Lemon and the two women on that morning show. And they asked him about the economy. And he said, he said, I do not invest in blue states yeah. anymore. Yeah. He said, yeah. Tax, I don't, I, you know, he, he said, New York and Illinois and California used the term uninvestable. He yeah. said, you cannot. And, and then Don Lemon was stuck. I mean, you should see the looks on these CNN people. And Don Lemon said, is it because of the high taxes? He said, yeah, high taxes. But also they want to regulate. They're anti-business. And I don't want to invest in these places. He was just, he was on today. Uh, Telling us about the values of investing in North Dakota, and by the way, which is which is opportunities. Yes, it's one of the fastest growing states in America. Uh, and by the way, I didn't even know this. Microsoft's got a big operation up there. Uh, Pharma's have a big operation up there, and of course, our friend Harold Ham uh, has right. got the fracking operation. North Dakota runs community banks. The states it's like a sovereign state wealth fund. And they run the banks, and that's how they keep them straight. And I didn't know a thing about this. I didn't know a thing about this. So next time Kevin Kramer's on or John Hoban, those guys, they're from a pro-business state, North Dakota. We all should go to North Dakota this summer. Let's just head right out there. It's better than Martha's Vineyard or one of them places, Nantucket. I don't know. I just can't. There's no ESG in North Dakota. I can't have it out there. It's against the law. It's getting pretty bad when people leave California for North Dakota. <laughs> oh, it's the new. That's the new. That's the new. That's just terrific stuff. All right, uh, we got time. For, we got time for one more. We got time for one. Steve. What are you doing on your radio show? We got a promo on your radio show. What are you doing? Who you, uh, you know, we we talk about the bank failures, what's going on with the Fed, and how uh, you know uh, a lot of this circles back to the out of control government spending and debt that's yeah. caused the interest rates to go up. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a very good uh, Wall Street Journal interview today uh, on this uh, subject with um, which the, the guy used to run the Kansas City Fed. And um, the – hold on. I, I should have it here, but I don't have it here. Anyway, yeah, here it is. Mary O'Grady. Yeah, uh, very good. With uh, Thomas Honig. Yes, Thomas Honig. And, yeah. and it's really good. They, the regulators failed to heed the warning signs of a disaster. But he is saying, Liz – Everyone talked about regulatory capital risk, but they didn't talk about duration yes. risk. Capital. Can you imagine? And that's I mean, really, I didn't know that. There's nothing by, in these the laws. And by the way, that throws Elizabeth Warren's complaints about re-regulating right. and the 2018 thing completely out the window. Yep. Because no matter what, how big you are, I, I actually, I read that and I, I just couldn't believe it because... Yep. To ignore the duration of assets when when they are obviously volatile in direct proportion to their their duration, I, I don't get that at all. And I thought it was a very good piece she wrote. Yeah, Everyone should read that. A terrific piece. And the ultimate sin, of course, was high inflation and yeah. um, interest rates. But that was there too. Anyway, kids, thank you very very much. Sorry to inflict Alvin Bragg on you, but I think we survived it very well. Liz Peak, terrific. Steve Moore's, uh, Steve Moore's More Money will follow this show on most of these same stations. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back for more next weekend.